Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Today's students that are the hardest hit by poor reading, we estimate the cost to Australia is about $40 billion over their lifetimes. So these students lose out on potential earnings. A new report from the Grattan Institute suggests Australia has a reading problem. Also... A decision to go on to an antidepressant is a, is a big deal and um, it's too often the case that we don't treat it as a big deal. We think it's something... Um, you know, fairly unremarkable. We speak to an expert concerned about the rising prescribing rate of antidepressants in Australia. And later today... We need smoking cessation programs that are very much tailored to the needs of people with disability. Advocates are urging policymakers implement new strategies to reduce the high smoking rate amongst Australians with disabilities. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up, Yesterday was International Day of Women and Girls in Science, a day dedicated to celebrating the contribution and efforts of women in STEM. More women are entering the sector in recent years as more work opportunities become available. And although the Department of Industry reports 68% of STEM-qualified occupations are held by women, there are still challenges remaining to be addressed. The Wires contributor from Tune FM, Ash Taylor, reports. As part of a push to promote equal access to science for women and girls, the United Nations has named the 11th of February the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. In 2024, this is the ninth year running. STEM fields, science, technology, engineering and mathematics are historically male-dominated. Data from the Australian Department of Industry shows that in 2023, only 37% of enrolments in university STEM courses are women, and just 15% of STEM-qualified jobs are held by women. There is not a great representation of women in STEM, and that needs to really change. So I would encourage everyone to come up and pursue um, you know, STEMs or any kind of discipline that they're interested in, the sciences. There's a lot of opportunities, and it's, it's great to kind of give it a go. And I know for women... Um, I mean, it's important, you know, we do we do kind of um, have st- statistics saying that there's not enough uh, women in leadership roles and all of that. And that can only change if you have women coming into universities and taking up, uh, you know, getting interested in STEMs going forward and as they move forward i mean as i i mean that's something that is important for women to understand is that we need to we need to be confident we need to just follow our passion we need to ask the right questions and have and build up a support system you know who can have our back at all those conferences the majority of geoscientists and in fact scientists in general are men and so that's one of the challenges you're going to face going into this field is you're very male-based 
competition and the decision makers are going to be narrow. That doesn't mean that there's a room for within there absolutely is, and that room is expanding, and just because it's narrow dominated doesn't mean that there's one of the women out either. So basically, as I'm also got a disability, I've got a fair experience with discrimination and barriers. So the best thing to do, if you really are interested in a discipline like science, is keep pushing forward and try and find those workarounds. If you encounter a barrier that says it's not for you, that you want to do it, keep looking for other ways to do it. Because there will be an ask for you to be a successful female scientist. You just will find some obstacles on the way. For these women in science, community plays an important role. The big game changer for me was to surround yourself with other women where you can. It took most of my life to be exposed to a a woman role model in STEM, so I know firsthand how tricky it is. But the, the stronger that network is and the stronger connections you have with other women and girls is what's really helped me in terms of inspiration and motivation and just just feeling connected and supported. And then when those tough days do come along, you have that network to fall back on. I think it's all about community. You know, whatever you end up doing, you've got to love the community you're part of. Um, people don't often talk about the sort of the role that community plays in science. You know, you kind of sometimes we get the impression that people say you've either got to be good at it or you're not. Um, and I don't really believe that necessarily. Um, for me, myself, the reason that I stuck around in science is because I had a wonderful community of people around me when I was doing my undergrad and then my um, postgrad studies. And that is kind of what I, I try to produce here at UNE. That was Dr. Marissa Betts from the University of New England, ending that story by Tune FM's Ash Taylor. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. A new report from the Grattan Institute suggests Australia has a reading problem, showing one-third of Australian children can't read proficiently. The report highlights the education system's role in the issue and says we need to change how students learn to read, ensuring disadvantaged kids aren't left behind. To learn more about the report, The Wire's Eduardo Jordan spoke with senior associate at the Grattan Institute, Annika Stobart. Our report looked at how we can improve reading performance in Australia. While almost all students can learn to read with high quality instruction and support, about one in three Australian students on average are not meeting grade level expectations in reading. So reading is a foundational skill for learning and for life. And we know if students are not proficient, they struggle to keep up with their peers, which can further widen learning gaps over time. They may also be more likely to drop out of school, earn less or be unemployed. And for Australia, there are huge costs to this. So for today's students that are the hardest hit by poor reading, we estimate the cost to Australia is about $40 billion over their lifetimes. So these students lose out on potential earnings, but governments also lose out 
on tax revenue and we all spend more on welfare, justice and public health. So you mentioned that one third of Australian students cannot read proficiently. Why is this number so high? We know that there's been an underperformance problem that's persisted for some time in Australia. And while over the last 10 years, there's been some improvement in year three and year five, according to NAPLAN, this hasn't flowed through to secondary schools. And so governments need to really step up and provide better advice and more support to schools to ensure that they're teaching according to the best practice approach to teaching reading. Uh, we can't really take this wait to fail approach that we're currently having where students fall through the cracks and many students don't catch up if they don't master their early reading skills early on. And while there are some great strides that some governments are making, uh, such as South Australia and New South Wales. There's a lot more that could be done, particularly to invest in rigorous training for teachers and give them the tools they need to teach reading well. So what are the student sectors that are most affected by not reading proficiently in schools? So we know from the data that some students in particular have struggled to learn to read. So NAPLAN 2023 results show that half of regional and remote students are not meeting grade level expectations in reading. And for Indigenous students, it's even higher. But this isn't an issue just for um, disadvantaged students. We know that advantaged students are also affected. So about one in four advantaged students are not meeting proficiency benchmarks according to the OECD PISA data. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar, what's the method used at this point for teaching to read and why is it outdated? Currently, there is a lot of variation in how reading is taught across the, the country. So surveys show that there are a worrying sign that teachers don't have the knowledge and skills they need to, to teach reading according to best practice. So the evidence about how to teach reading well uh, has been well established for some time, but there has been disagreement about the best way to teach over the last few decades. And this has created a complexity for teachers and school leaders to know uh, how best to teach reading. So what the evidence says is that in the early years of school, teaching should focus on systematic instruction in phonemic awareness and phonics. So this is where students connect letters with sounds. And then they also need to be taught, explicitly taught vocabulary, fluency and background knowledge, particularly through later primary school and into uh, high school so that they can really master their comprehension reading skills. The report suggests a six-step reading guarantee that and, and a commitment from state and federal government and schools, etc. Could you please explain briefly um, what are those? Australia should follow other international systems that have taken up the challenge to improve reading instruction. So countries like England and Ireland show that we need a comprehensive suite of reforms and long-term commitment to improve reading outcomes. Uh, and so we need to be bold and commit to um, transform how we teach reading. And this requires this six-step strategy, which is yeah, a comprehensive long-term strategy that includes commitments. So governments should commit to uh, at least 90% of students becoming proficient in the long term with an intermediate 10-year target to try and get there. 
and it also involves providing teachers with specific guidelines on how to teach reading in line with the evidence on what works best and developing the skills of our teachers through extra training and by ensuring every school has a literacy instructional specialist to help teachers improve. And then lastly, governments will also need to better monitor reading performance so it can give more support to poor performing schools. So while this plan includes a lot um, and it will require some additional resources and funds, the benefits will far exceed the costs given what we know uh, of how important reading is for um, all Australians. Annika Stobart from the Grattan Institute there, ending that report by The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs, listening on 8CCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio. And to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. Experts are concerned at the rising prescribing rate of antidepressants, with around one in seven Australians taking antidepressant medication every day. In 2019, approximately 27 million prescriptions were given for antidepressants in Australia, with 86% of those written by GPs. University of Adelaide professor and psychiatrist Dr John Giardini says the main concerns are these medications being over or misprescribed, with patients unaware of possible side effects and withdrawal symptoms. Although most guidelines recommend only using antidepressants for limited periods, um, many people are taking them indefinitely. And then when and if they decide they want to stop taking them, they can have terrible difficulty with with withdrawal symptoms, um, which can be mistaken as a recurrence of the initial condition for which they were prescribed the antidepressants, and so they get stuck taking them. Many people are prescribed antidepressants when they shouldn't be. Um, They're prescribed for um, less severe presentations that don't warrant medication. The evidence anyway for the effectiveness of these medications is quite poor and they do have significant harms which are often not well um, presented to patients when they make the decision about whether or not to start medication. Is this an issue in the sense that general practitioners are prescribing them and I guess people should seek consultation or advice from someone like yourself, someone like a psychiatrist? 85% of antidepressants are prescribed by GPs, but this is not a problem of GPs making. Um, There has been very heavy promotion of antidepressants uh, by the pharmaceutical industry and by so-called key opinion leaders who are psychiatrists who are influenced by um, industry to promote antidepressants. And so GPs are increasingly confronted with uh, patients who are kind of influenced to to conceptualise as having a medical illness when there are much more healthy and constructive ways of making sense of those presentations. And what are some of the other other healthy or constructive ways? We um, push is the idea that 
you should try to make sense of the person's uh, reasons for coming to the doctor. Um, saying I'm depressed is pretty good shorthand for saying, I've, you know, things don't feel right for me. I'm not getting the same enjoyment out of life. I feel distressed a lot of the time. But that's by no means an explanation of what the person is experiencing. And so we need to find what the explanation is, whether it's grief or whether it's family violence or whether it's some kind of dreadful disappointment. Um, and we can be much more helpful to patients if we do identify what's going on and um, either help them to address that or help them to accept things that can't be changed. Um, these are much more constructive interventions than labelling it as depression because you've got a certain number of symptoms and uh, giving a medication that may not be helpful and may cause harm. Comparing the rates of, I guess, people that are being prescribed these versus how many people are, are presenting with depression, have, has that rate gone up? Because I, I can understand that when, you know, reading your article talking about the social or environmental determinants of, of mental health, so lots more people are, are struggling financially with the cost of living and housing. The rise in the number of people taking antidepressants is sort of a, increasing at a greater rate than we could expect to be explained by um, increasing levels of distress in the community. Uh, absolutely, there are there are increasing pressures. Our society is becoming more unequal. More people are doing it tough. Jobs are insecure. People are being exploited in um, you know jobs that uh, you know don't provide adequate sick leave and other um, benefits. So yes, indeed, there are increased um, reasons why people will feel distressed. The answer to those problems is not. Um, more medication. The healthcare system, the way it's set up, do you believe it's designed to take into account those those environmental factors or, or social determinants? I think you're, you're right. Health system is set up to take an individualised approach to um, presentations. You know, GPs are under enormous pressure, um, time pressure, um, and everybody, you know, medical specialists all want to GPs to do more and more, um, but not at, not providing adequate resourcing and support and training for them to do that in the way that they would like to. So it's easy to look at the fact that 85% of this prescribing is coming from GPs and to suggest that GPs are at fault, but this is a, a system issue, a failure of our society to mm. um, recognise the harmful effects of inequality and poverty and those kinds of um problems. The fact that so many people are taking their distress to doctors I think is symptomatic of, of um, a loss of social support and um, social connectedness. Psychiatrist Dr John Giardini there, ending that report. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. The findings of a recent study is recommending policymakers implement new strategies to reduce the high smoking rate of Australians with disabilities. Health experts from Flinders University and Cancer Council New South Wales found nearly a quarter of Australians with disabilities smoke, compared to around 12% of able-bodied people. 
The Wire's Tony Pankalewicz spoke with Professor Billy Benevsky, Director of Flinders Health and Medical Research Institute. Well, there's probably a few reasons why smoking rates are higher amongst people with disability. We know that people with disability often face quite a bit of financial hardship. They may be low income. We also know that people who are on low income and are financially disadvantaged, generally speaking, have higher smoking rates. Another is limited access to quit support. So often you might need to go to a GP and then perhaps to some counselling service to help you achieve smoking cessation. And if there are mobility or other health restrictions that limiting your access to health services, it means that you find it really hard to get any help in your quit attempts. And then there's these historical or cultural reasons that smoking rates might be high and that we know that in a range of different healthcare settings historically like mental health treatment services that smoking was promoted as a way to control people because they're often inpatient settings and sometimes staff also had very high smoking rates and they would sit down and have a session with a patient and have a cigarette together and this idea of sitting together and chatting over a cigarette, it built rapport between the health service staff member and the patient. Smoking became quite ingrained in certain population groups that might needed inpatient health care. So across the country, when we talk about the states and territories, are there strategies when trying to tackling smoking issues? Is it the same or is it different in each of the states or has the federal government perhaps mandated all the states follow the same policy? It's a mixture of the two. So the federal government has a national tobacco strategy and traditionally they've always funded a national tobacco campaign. So you might have seen anti-smoking ads on TV, but then you also have each state health department as well as each state health organisations like cancer councils, for example, they also do very state-based campaigns. So can you tell us what solutions are being proposed in the research by Flinders University and Cancer Council New South Wales for smokers with disabilities? I suppose what we need and what we most want to achieve is to create a supportive environment, structure and culture for people with disability to receive all the support that they need to quit. And in order to do that, we need smoking cessation programs that are very much tailored to the needs of people with disability. We're making a lot of speculation, but we don't understand. There's not good data about why it's so hard to quit, why smoking rates are so high. And so we need to understand the factors that cause the high smoking rates 
and what some of the ways that might be most effective to help people quit amongst people with a disability. We have evidence-based smoking cessation support. We have them. We know that behavioural counselling is effective. It helps people quit smoking. And we also know that pharmacotherapies, so things like nicotine replacement therapy, you know, nicotine patches, nicotine gum, that those things also help people quit smoking. And I suppose what we don't know for people with disability is how to get those supports to them so that they're easily accessible, they're affordable, they're available. We also need to learn more about their carers. Do they also have high smoking rates? So do we need to help them quit as well? So there's a lot of work that we need to do to ensure that the evidence-based smoking cessation supports that are currently available are optimal, that they're suitable for people with disability. That was Professor Billy Benevsky from the Flinders Health and Medical Research Institute speaking with The Wire's Tony Pankalewick. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Yuggera countries on which this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders, past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. As always, thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.